0: You're listening to Sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible and open it to the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't own a Bible, I'll say this now. There's some Bibles on the back table at the Connect table. Please take a Bible. It's our gift to you. We would love for you to have your own Bible. But if you would, like I said, go ahead and turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're a little unfamiliar with your Bible, it's in the New Testament, which is toward the end of your Bible. It's good to be back with you guys this morning. I preached a few weeks ago after returning from sabbatical and get to preach this morning. And so I love our church family. I love getting to preach and teach God's Word to our church family. And so I'm thankful to be here this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Rick. And I've been tasked with the role of lead preaching and vision pastor for Gospel Community Church, a role that I'm thankful to be in and thankful to dive into God's word this morning. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. If you're visiting, we want you to leave with a clear understanding of what the gospel is. And this morning, we're going to really hone in on what grace is. And so even as Sarah said, Christianity doesn't walk side by side by other religions in the world, what they list of do's and don'ts, Christianity, its message is primarily a message, a message of what's been done, one to be received. So it's not based upon our good works, good merits, efforts, actions, or anything like that. It's based upon the actions and merit of one man named Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago. That's good news especially for guys like our executive pastor, Brad Leibolt, who went hunting all week long and came back empty-handed again. So success doesn't define us. So <clears throat> my love language is heckling, and so feel free to fire away. But don't get, shh, shh, I will publicly rebuke you. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be looking at what's labeled labors in the vineyard. We're going to start one verse before that in 19 verse 30. Follow along with me if you would. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foremen, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came... what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for joy. We thank you for laughter. We thank you for a family. Father, we thank you for your family, the family of God. A family that we have not earned our way into. A family that we are not continuing to earn our way into. A family that we are not clinging to by our works and efforts. Father, we serve of God who is generous. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the fullness of your generosity displayed in giving the ultimate and greatest gift in your Son. Father, I pray your grace would unsettle us. I pray it'd be amazing this morning, and I pray that our hearts would be open to receive it in such a way that it makes us vulnerable but also at the same time changes and heals us. Thank you for your grace that changes everything. I recognize there's people that come in this morning with different pains and aches and hurts, depression, anxiety, frustration, anger, marital strife, sicknesses, illnesses, and Father, we praise you for this. Again, your grace changes everything. We serve a God who's not disconnected or removed from the pain and suffering of your creation. Father, we serve a God who stepped into the person of your Son, Jesus, you know pain, you know strife, you know illness, you know what death feels like, and we praise you that we serve a God who can empathize with all of those things. We praise you we serve a God who's good, and we pray through your goodness right now, you would exhort and encourage, challenge and transform us, bring healing to us through your word and to the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Our main point this morning is we're doing a one-off sermon just to stand alone before we dive into the book of Romans next week, is grace changes everything. So the late Tim Keller who passed away this year, that was the motto and mission for their church, Redeemer Presbyterian, is that grace changes everything. And so we're going to look at that this morning, that grace changes everything. Next week, we're going to be diving in to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. So Romans is where we're going to start next week, and we're going to do a Romans overview and the first seven verses. So here's what I would recommend. If you have not read Romans, please read it. And if you can, try to read it in one setting, but if you can't, read it in a couple, and here's why. When you start to read letters that way, you can start to see what the main theme or the motif is of that letter throughout. And so read it in one big setting or a couple, and then look for what Paul is developing throughout that letter. That way you can come prepared to hear and receive as we dive in next week. So this morning we're going to dive into, like I said, This passage on Matthew 20, and look at this, that grace changes everything. So we're going to look at a few things this morning. We're going to look at God's choice, God's actions, and God's grace, as we can see them here in the parable that Jesus teaches. So let me first start off with this. This summer, I got into trail running a little bit. And so one day, I asked my wife, I said, would you want to go trail running with me? And there's this run that we like to do, where you can start at one end, and you can run all the way through to the other, and so you can park a car at both ends and attack it that way. All right, you can already see that me using the word attack is probably not going to work out good. But that was that was my method. We're going to park a car here, park a car here. My wife and I are going to do this together. It's going to be a beautiful experience for us and for our marriage. Blah blah blah. <clears throat> We're about a, maybe a mile in, and and the sun is scorching. We're, we start on the side where there is like no shelter, no trees. It's just rocky desolate, and she's not, she's not thrilled about this, okay? And so she's letting me know that. So I respond like any loving husband would, and I said, your complaints and grumbling are doing nothing to change our circumstances. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I, I'm throwing this out as some freebies on what not to do. And so, and then to make matters worse, I said, and I'm only, I'm only quoting what you told one of our children yesterday. <laughs> Yeah. It was good. It was good. Man, we were just hugging and kissing after that. It was just jolly. The reality is, is that we oftentimes treat people based upon their attitudes. And so if someone's attitude is good, then I will pursue you and love you and treat you because your attitude is such but if your attitude's not great or you're not responding in a way that I think you should respond, then I will hold back love and affections for you. And then what I will give you is what I think you should be doing. And the reality is, is that is opposite of what God's grace looks like. You see, God's grace is not connected to actions. It's not connected to works. It's not connected to attitude. It's not connected to motives or anything like that. God's grace is connected to his own decision and his own choice to move and pursue you, not based upon anything you do. If you can tether anything you do, a drip, an ounce, a speck, to God's love, to God's acceptance, to God's approval, you don't have grace. You have something that you've done. So God's grace can be defined as one-way love. It can be defined as something that is undeserved, a gift, a lavish gift that is undeserved. And it can also be defined as God's love and favor that's not tethered or connected to anything that we do. Why is this important? Because grace changes everything. The message of Christianity is a message of grace. But here's the reality. Grace is really difficult. We, we, we love to hear it. We love to receive it and be recipients of it. But actually giving grace is really difficult. And sometimes at the same time, we can go, wow, that's amazing. And also it's infuriating at the same time. And so we're, we're going to look at that and, and believe As we dive into this passage and see it, it is teaching us grace without using that word. You see, the word grace is used in our Bibles 131 times in the the ESV, the translation we use. 124 of those are in the New Testament. So it says a lot about grace, but even when it doesn't say the explicit word grace, we can see it defining what grace is, and we can see that here. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Before we do that, I need you to understand this, that from Birth, we are all Pharisees by nature. One, you might not, not, might not like hearing that. Two, you might not understand what that is. And so here's what I mean Pharisees in the time of Jesus were those who were extremely rich, religious and extremely pious. They wanted to devote their whole life to living according to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God's law. And not only that, but what a Pharisee did is they went over and beyond what God's law said and they drew the line a little bit further over. And so if it said, don't do this, then they would draw it over here and say, we're going to protect it even more. And here's where it gets bad. They wouldn't just hold people to the standard of God's law, wherever they've drawn the line at over here, they would hold people to that standard. And they would look on contempt with anyone that didn't live up to the standard that they had created. Naturally, from birth, I believe everyone in this room and everyone in the world has all sorts of Pharisee within them. And what do I mean by that? Or why would that be? Well, Let's look at the religions of the world. In Buddhism, what they're trying to do is reach a stage of nirvana. And nirvana is where we can simply, through a code of law, get rid of all the passions and the desires within us. In Hinduism, we want to reach Dharma, which Dharma is a code in ethics that we can achieve through morality. In Judaism, you want to live by the code of the law of the Torah. What about atheism? Even in Richard Dawkins' books, a well-known atheist. He says there is nothing as objective morality. But then he goes on to tell you about how awful and wrong it is for you to indoctrinate your kids with dogma and doctrine. So he has through atheism, adopted a code and law of standard that says you shouldn't be teaching this, you shouldn't be doing this. The atheist is not off the hook. He has a law and standard that he's driving and leading with. Everyone from birth has some law or standard that they're upholding it. And in some ways we want others to uphold too. Where does that come from? I believe it comes from the fall, chapter three in our Bible, which is when sin enters the picture. And why I believe that is this. I believe the reason why we adopt a code or a law, or some sort of ethical being, or I'm sorry, some sort of ethical model is because we know the world is not right. We know that things aren't the way that they should be, and we believe that somehow through our external efforts, a law, a code, morality, something like that, we can get things back to how they once were. That would be like trying to change your blood type. If you're a type O and, and, and you wanna to try to become a type B blood type, doing external actions will never be able to change that. It would be insanity. If someone was like, what are you doing? And you're like, I'm doing all this ethical stuff to try and change my blood type. People would be like, that doesn't make any sense. Nor does it make any sense to try to fix what's fallen inside of our nature to the core, the Pharisee within by trying to do external things. Yet we try it and we do it and we see it happening in the world all around us constantly. So first, I would also say this. One of the reasons why we do it is the law, God's law is good. It's just not capable of saving and transforming the heart and life because we can't uphold it. But it's good. The reason why we like law and morals and for the self righteous, you know, religious person in the room is because it's manageable and it makes us feel safe. And so if I can uphold all the laws, it it, it makes my world feel very safe. And so we're drawn to it. The grace, the gospel, not connected to anything we do, that feels very risky, very unsafe. You see, Christianity doesn't arrive with some sage wisdom. Do this, don't do that, or anything like that. It arrives with a message, and the message is good news. You either accept the message and receive it, or you reject it. But it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not like Buddhism, or Hinduism, or Islam, or Judaism, or anything like that. It's, primary, it's primarily a message that is told that is heralded, that is said, and that we receive. So <clears throat> let's dive in and look at this. First, God's choice. I want you to see this, that it's the master that seeks out the labor. So for the kingdom of heaven is like a master, the owner of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, you need to see this. God does the seeking. God does the choosing. God here is seeking out the, the laborers. So the owner is leaving his vineyard, he's traveling into town, and he's seeking people out. It's not the people in the town that are seeking out the master looking to get into his vineyard. It's the one who has left his vineyard, gone into town, and he's seeking them out. We need to understand the message of Christianity doesn't start with a bunch of people seeking after God. It actually starts with God seeking after them. And why is that important? If we say that we sought after God, and and we we spend all this time seeking after God, that would be something we could boast about. But when God pursues us in a state of idleness, in a state of laziness, in a state of not seeking him at all, God gets the glory. And so we see this, the Jewish day started at sunup. So at sunup, the master leaves and he goes into the town and he's looking for laborers. So around 6 a.m. in the morning, the master goes out and he finds a laborer says, come work for me. I'm going to pay you a denarius, which is a day's wage. Great. Comes back and does that. I have a level of respect for the individual that was in the marketplace at sunup and was going to be picked for a job. Anyone after that, I lose all respect for, just tell me. And it's not just me. It's us. You see, the first hour would have been that 6 a.m., 7 a.m. group. But then it goes on to say that the master went out to the third hour So he goes out at 9 o'clock, and then he goes out at 12 o'clock, and he finds those that are idle. That can also be translated as lazy or useless. So the master's going out and finding lazy, idle, useless people. Are those the kind of people that we would seek out for employees? If you own something, are you like, man, I want to get into town, I want to find the laziest, most useless idle people I can, i want to bring them in. You know you're not going to get a lot of good work out of them. So already we're seeing something like, why is the master pursuing people that we typically wouldn't pursue? And what you'll see in Christianity is God's not pursuing people, even as Sarah said, based upon pedigree or based upon anything like that. It's all based upon his choice. God saved the nation of Israel, not because they were the strongest, not because they were the biggest, the best, but because of his own grace, his own choosing, his own doing so that he would get the glory. You see, we typically choose people like Melba, I think you pronounce her last name, Mabane or something like that. But Melba Mabane worked for Dillard's store. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. It's kind of like a JCPenney's or a Macy's. She She is 90 and retired after 73 years of working for them. Here's what's amazing. She never missed a single day's work in 73 years. She never called in sick, not one time. She also was given an hour lunch break, and she only used 25 minutes of it because she recognized that other people used their lunch break to come to Dillard's to shop and wanted to make sure she was back on the floor and available to help them. She would show up, though the store opened at 10, between 9 and 9.15. In her 70s and 80s, her son had to drive her to work so she could still work 40 hours a week. We're like, yes, Melba. But it's not the Melbas that God is pursuing in this. You see, we love to celebrate the hard worker with good work ethic and say, yeah, let's let's go after that person. Let's give them the job. But the master's pursuing the lazy, idle, useless person in the marketplace. What should we take from this? Don't assume that because of where someone's at, where someone's been, what someone's gone through, that they're irredeemable or unsavable or that God wants nothing to do with them. I love the story of D.L. Moody who kept, it said, in his prayer log, in his pocket, a hundred people that he knew that did not have a relationship with Jesus that he prayed for every single day until the day that he died. And it said that at his funeral that every single one of those people had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, D.L. Moody faithfully prayed for people that didn't yet know Jesus. And now what I would say is sometimes we, we look at people and we're like, man, they are, they are far gone. I prayed for him. I did it for like three months. Nothing happened. I would say keep praying and pursuing the people that maybe the world has said they're outcasted or they're too far gone because God's saving grace is powerful enough to bring people like that in. How do I know that? He's brought you in and he's brought me in for those here that have placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Don't stop praying. Don't stop pursuing. Some of you might be thinking, well, how do I maybe as a parent also not enable? So again, Jesus is modern day. Jesus is pursuing the 25-year-old who's living in their parents' basement playing video games till 3 a.m. Like, man, that guy. He's extending an offer to them. So how do you not enable as a parent? Well, what you could do is if that's your life, you could simply buy a suit you could offer to take your kid out to go find a job or something like that. That would not be enabling. That would actually still be modeling grace. But what we ultimately need to recognize is that it's grace in the long run that is going to have the power and the only power to save and transform a heart life because grace changes everything. So we see this. The master goes out. He pursues the idle and useless, lazy worker, and he goes out early in the morning. He goes out at 9 and at 12, and then he's eventually going to go out in the 11th hour, That's 5 p.m. The workday ends at 6. So let's look at now the actions that I believe reflect God's actions. So God's choice, the uh, useless, lazy idol. God's actions. A pursuit of those people in such a way that readers in the first century and even readers today look at those actions and go, that's rogue and even reckless. When you understand the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, and you see this the prodigal father, because that's what it, I believe, should be called, and so the prodigal son is the prodigal father, because it looks like the father's gone rogue. Men in that culture didn't run, and he lifts up his robe, he lifts up his tunic, and he takes off running to the son, and he embraces the son who has been in Gentile regions covered in pig slop. We go, oh, those aren't the actions that someone should be doing, and when we look at the actions here, we recognize those actions don't seem consistent to us or to them in the first century because what's happening here? Let's keep moving on. Verse six, And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the village or or go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. You already wouldn't pay someone that way. You would pay the person that started working at the first hour of the day that endured the scorching heat of the day, and then the other ones last. But also, I love what Professor Kenneth Bailey says this. So here's a man who spent, I believe, 30-plus years studying this culture in, in first century era, studying it and also teaching the New Testament in places like Egypt and Cyprus and Jerusalem. So here's what Professor Kenneth Bailey says. He says, landowners in the Middle East are known traditionally to be gentlemen farmers. They hire others to work the land and appoint a foreman steward to manage the estate. A traditional landowner may give his steward careful instructions in the morning and ask for a report at the end of the day. But to make the trek in person from the farm to the market and back five times in a single day is unheard of. That was a manager's job. So the, 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 the choice of who the master's choosing doesn't make sense but the actions don't make sense at all. He's not acting like a normal owner or a normal master. He's pursuing the useless, but he's also going out, not just one time, which they would have never done, but five times. There's this over and abundance pursuit of people not doing anything, completely passive, standing there, and there's a master's pursuit. Anyone listening in, any first century Jew, as Jesus tells this parable, would have been unsettled. In fact, one rabbi around the time that Jesus lived, Rabbi Sifra said this, and, and he, was, he was giving a commentary, a parable on Leviticus 26 9. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. So here's this verse, Rabbi Sifra around the time Jesus lives gives this parable. This is what his parable says. It is like a king who hired many workers. There was one particular worker who labored for him many days. The workers came to receive their payment, and this worker entered with him. The king said to that worker, my son, I shall have special regard for you. These many who labored with me a little, I shall pay a little, but I am about to settle a large account with you. That's how. That's how our world works today. That, it's not just us. It was first century, and this is not to pick on Judaism and Jewish people because, like I said, there's a Pharisee within all of us, see, The actions were inconsistent. The actions didn't make sense. Wait, wait, wait. This person, you got to get this. The master leaves the vineyard. He goes into the village, which would have been a trek. He finds the person. By the time he makes the trek back and explains the work, one, one commentator, scholar and theologian said, there literally probably wasn't anything for him to do. He just heard about the work that others have done and that he could or should be doing. In the text, it says, it was about an hour. Not much. Then it's pay time, and so he says to the foreman, "Let's pay them." And so they all line up, and, and he says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay the one that's just got here during this last hour. I'm gonna pay them first, and then I'm gonna pay over here the ones that have been here from sunup last." He's like, "Denarius for you, denarius for you, denarius for you," and, and they're thinking, "Oh yeah, at least at least two probably, you know, maybe a lot more." Denarius for you, denarius for you, and they're ticked off around our table yesterday, we did a devotional with our children. I was butchering trying to explain this to our kids. My wife saved me. And she explained it like this. She goes, hey, imagine this. Imagine you guys have to go outside and feed your guinea pigs and rabbits. Or urban farmers. Okay. Imagine you have to do this. You have to go out and feed them. But imagine the oldest goes out first and is doing all the work. And then one of you comes in and then Drops a sliver of hay in there, and then we're like, it's time to square up with you guys and and pay you guys, and you get paid the same. Our old is like, I I don't like that. No one likes that. There's there's something there that infuriates us that you would get the same that I would get when I did all the work. If you someone, if you're someone who's worked for a family business, if you're someone who has worked most of your life and someone comes in and then gets everything at the end that you get, you're like, what's up with that? You're ticked. It doesn't make sense. It's amazing, but it's infuriating. That's what grace is. It changes everything. You see, the actions here don't make any sense because we like to think, oh, I've been following Jesus since I was seven. I've read the Bible a lot. I've prayed a lot. I've barely missed church. I've made it to a lot of Sunday schools. I I take communion. I, I give. And then this person, this prostitute, this addict, this person comes in and they're somehow equal with me, the same status as a child of God, yet I've been working for God all these years, serving my church, doing all these things, and I would say, you've missed it. If you look back on your life and see all of your actions and all the things that you've done for God as a means for God to be able to bless you, you've missed it, or you've misunderstood it. You see your actions your service, your work, your efforts, and all those things were never an attempt to try to earn God's favor or hold on to it. The hope is those things flow from the fact that you didn't earn anything that you have. I like what Ray Ortland says, a pastor and theologian. He says, hell is filled with people who believe they deserve to be in heaven. Heaven is filled with people who believe they deserve to be in hell. Again, Hell is filled with people who believe they deserve to be in heaven. Heaven is filled with people who believe they deserve to be in hell. If you understand that the way that you were brought into God's family, into his kingdom is not based upon what you do or don't do, then you have no room for pride. You have no room for contempt. You have no room to look down on anyone else. Any growth in your life has been a gift by God in his grace through the work of the Holy Spirit. If you have a greater understanding of the gospel, if you have a greater understanding of God's word, any of those things are a gift that only was made possible to you by God's grace and love and pursuit of you. As Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer said, we are all beggars, all beggars with our hands out, not pointing to things that we've done, not pointing to our obedience, not pointing to our disobedience. We are pointing to the life of Christ that was lived out for us 2,000 years ago. Grace changes everything. These actions are hard for us to get our mind wrapped around. How does grace change everything? Why is it relevant? Let me say this. I'm willing to bet that so many problems in our life, if not all of them, come from a misunderstanding of the gospel of grace. Everyone in this room is a believer. And I would say everyone in this room is an unbeliever. And what I mean by that is there's areas in our life where we don't believe and rest and trust in the work of Christ, whether it's his all satisfying work and and therefore we're satisfied or whether it was enough done for us. Those who understand, I don't deserve to be in the family of God. God would be just to punish me for my rebellion against him. And now I'm in the family of God. Those are the people that don't sit around going, so-and-so hurt me. So-and-so didn't pursue me enough. I just can't forgive them. Jesus even gives another or he, he, he gives another example to a Pharisee and says those that are forgiven little forgive little those that are forgiven much forgive much when we understand the magnitude of God's grace what we actually deserve and what we've actually been given it changes everything the reason why a spouse won't pursue another spouse is typically connected to the actions of the spouse if your if you were going to reflect and model the kind of grace that God has displayed in Jesus Christ for his bride, it's not connected to what people do or don't do. Let's be honest. Do you hold back intimacy from your husband based upon his emotional pursuit of you? Do you hold back emotions and pursuing your wife that way because of their lack of physical intimacy or their pursuit of you that way? When our spouses shun us or do stuff that we don't like, do we move toward them and say, I'm willing to forgive you and love you and pursue you and keep moving toward you because that's a reflection of what Jesus' love and grace looks like. Easy in some ways to receive, really hard to live out. Why? Because maybe underneath all that is a heart that is having a hard time understanding the magnitude of God's grace for you. But those that go, wow, wow, I don't deserve anything I have, and the God of this universe loves me and pursues me without measure, not based upon what I do, not based upon my failures, not based upon successes, based upon his amazing grace. Whew. I can give grace to others. It changes a church family. It changes a life. It changes a marriage. It changes a home. It changes everything because it changes the way you live in your pursuit of others. You, 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 you don't look down on others and say, ah, They're not doing that or they're not doing that or they don't do this as good as I do or as good as I do. You simply go, I can't believe. I can't believe I'm here. You see, the actions wouldn't make sense. Let's wrap up and talk about God's grace. See, grace changes everything. We see his choice, who he chooses, those that the world wouldn't choose. We see his actions that seem reckless or even rogue. Let's look at God's grace. You see, they hold their hand out. They all get a denarius, the ones who are the self-righteous ones, the religious ones, the Pharisees, they're angry because they're, they're telling the master, like, I, I, don't know if I don't know if you see this. I started work. I've endured the heat of the day. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I've done a lot. I think I deserve a little more. Let me say this. When trials come your way in life, you will be ticked off at God. When your marriage is struggling, when your relationships are struggling, when things are happening in life, you will be angry with God because this is what you actually believe. You believe that God should somehow be blessing you because of the things that you've been doing for him. It's not Christianity. It's not grace. It's not the gospel. You'll be upset. You'll be mad. You'll be like, man, God, I've been doing all this. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be going through all this. You should be blessing my life. That was a common thought of the Pharisees. It was a, it was a common thought of the Romans. In fact, the chapter before this, Jesus' disciples are confused because this rich young ruler, which that would have been the status of, man, this guy is rich because he's being blessed by God because he's so obedient. And Jesus says, no. And then Peter's like, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus goes, well, what is impossible for man is possible with God. Let's look at the way God has displayed his grace throughout the gospel of Matthew. It starts off with a genealogy in Matthew 1. That genealogy is filled with sin, with adultery, with all sorts of stuff. And through it comes the Messiah. God is not saving based upon pedigree. As we move forward, Jesus gives a sermon on the mountain. He starts it off with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is like, hey, those who admit that they have no means to save themselves based upon their works or efforts, that's who it's for. You move on. And in 5.48 of Matthew, Jesus says, you have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Just in case you're wondering if you can maybe climb up, you move on. And there's those that have the audacity to stand before the Lord in heaven in Matthew 7. And they say, Lord, Lord, look at all we did. Look at all all the wonder. We cast out demons. We did this. We did this. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. They had the audacity to point to their life, their works, their efforts. Instead of saying, I'll point to him, Jesus Christ. You continue on and you get to Matthew 18 and Jesus says, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like one of these. And he points to children. They were on the bottom of the totem pole. Today we idolize children back then. That wasn't the case. So Jesus is like, unless you become like the least in society, you move on and we see 19, the rich young man, like I just said, and then you see 20 and then Jesus ends and he says, so the last will be first and the first are going to be last. In other words, it's not about your day and your work and all those things. It's about the abundance and amazing grace of God that changes everything. Do you know what this does? Grace eliminates the F word. Got you guys perked up. I hate the word fair. Don't like it. Grace eliminates that. Our kids love to say it. They're like, that's not fair. And I'm like, kids, you know what's not fair? Jesus Christ, the only innocent perfect man. Walked this earth, obeyed every one of God's commands, lived out a life of perfect obedience, and then died a criminal's death on the cross? That's not fair. Boom, discipleship. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't do it like that. But, but the reality is, is if you want to see what's not fair, that's truly the only unfair act in all of human history. God would be fair and God would be just to only let Jesus Christ be in heaven. The rest of us, he'd be perfectly just. to Let us spend an eternity in hell for our rebellion against him. Grace is this. And the gospel is this. It's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. What is that? God sent his son. Jesus came. He's the only one who worked with perfect motives and perfect work ethic. Jesus Christ obeyed every one of God's commands laid out in God's laws. Jesus Christ loved perfectly. He lived perfectly But then here's the thing, what we would expect for a man, the only man that lived an innocent, perfect, obedient life to the Father, that he should be lifted up and exalted with a crown placed on him. But this king was lifted up in the scorching heat of the day to bear a cross. Why? Because either we needed to be there bearing the holy and just wrath of God, or he needs to be there in our place bearing it for us. And that's what he was doing. You see, his wage that he rightfully deserved would have been exalted which he is now, but instead what he received was our sin and the punishment it deserves. What is our wage? Our wage is that what he does and what he gives us is his life of obedience lived out. He gives us the approval and the love and the acceptance of the Father. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken on the cross so that we would never be forsaken by God a single moment for all of eternity. Instead, what we would be recipients of is God's constant approval and love and acceptance. He gives to us all of his righteousness, all of his perfection, all of his holiness, so that in the sight of God, those things define us forever. That's what the gospel is. And the grace displayed there changes everything. There's a movie called Top Gun, and there's a new one, it's like called Maverick or something. And there's this scene in there, where one of the actors is James Rooster in the movie, he can't get the guy off of him. And he's like, I can't shake him. You need to hear this. There's nothing you can do to possibly shake God's infinite love for you. We live inside of a galaxy that exists inside of 150 billion other galaxies. We can't get our mind around that. And God's love is more infinite than that, that will never alter or change based upon your actions. You can stand up, you can sit down. You can open your Bible, you can close your Bible. You can pray. But those things will never be contingent or tethered to God's constant love for you because it's connected to his grace, his decision, his choice, and the life and actions that his son lived out for you in your place when you put your trust and faith in him. Let me read this story as I wrap up here. Jonathan was 18 and just graduated high school. He wanted to live in the dorm so he could get away from home and do a little partying. His parents agreed, though they could hardly afford it. His dad, John Sr., worked at the mill, and his mom stayed at home where she raised his two younger sisters and brother. Jonathan didn't take his education seriously and would likely be kicked out of college after his freshman year. His parents paid for his school, helped him with food, gas, and other needs as they came up, but he squandered all of it. He lied to them, telling he was excelling in school, but that was far from the truth. Every Wednesday, he would come and have dinner with his family, but he would excuse himself for a bathroom break where he would slip into his father's room and steal at least $20 from his wallet, money he would use for drugs and alcohol. When John Jr. left the room to steal the money, his father would also leave the room for a few moments. After seven months of this happening, John Jr. noticed that his dad was leaving, and so he watched to see what his dad was doing. John Sr. would check his son's car, make sure everything was working, and put five gallons of gas in it. While he was stealing from his dad, his dad was taking care of him. John Jr. was crushed and had a hard time sleeping that night. So he called his dad in the middle of the night and said, Dad, can I come over and talk? And to which his dad replied, sure. John Jr. confessed everything and felt awful, but that was nothing. His dad told him that he already knew he was stealing the money and explained to him that he would always go by the ATM after work on Wednesdays to make sure there was enough money in his wallet for him to steal without it looking like there was too much gone. He also told him that every day he prayed for a moment like this to come, so he could wrap his arms around him and tell him how much he loved him. John Sr. told him he knew everything about his grades and stealing, but loved him anyway because he was his son and wanted to spend time with him. Flooded with tears by the grace and generosity he was shown, Jonathan's life never looked the same. John Sr. told him this was only a small and tiny glimpse of the grace God had given him, and by this act it hit him that his dad was modeling the grace of God and his grades and his life were never the same changed everything. God's grace and generosity changes everything. Dane Ortland says this, the way sanctifying growth takes place is not in essence by redoubling moral efforts, writing out new resolutions, and intensifying spiritual disciplines. The fundamental means of change is deeper and deeper reflection on the very gospel that rescued us in the first place. It sounds backward, but the path to holiness is through, not beyond the grace of the gospel because only undeserved grace can truly melt and transform the heart. Disobedience is not healed with obedience. Morality can reform, but never transform immorality. The route by which the New Testament exhorts radical obedience is not by tempering grace, but by driving it home all the more deeply. See, people will go, man, if you do that or teach that, it's going to make people go wild. And what I would say, the people that understand God's grace and generosity, displayed and given through his son, don't say, how do I rebel against him? Much like Jonathan. They understand that their blood type has been changed, that it will forever be a child. Of, they will forever be a child of God. That's unchangeable, and it was all done by God's grace through the work of His Son. And so, here's what I would say, in ending: I can't encourage you enough to live inside of this book, the Bible. I can't encourage you enough to pray. Though my children's identity won't change that they are my children, they will never get to experience my love apart from time with me hearing my voice, talking with me. So the same goes with us. We don't go to God to get more love from him. We go to God because he'll never change his love for us. And through his word, we hear his voice. And through prayer, we get to interact with him. And so it changes everything because our motives now are not, here's what I'm doing to get something from you. I'm doing this because I've been given everything from you and I want to experience you. And pray for this. Pray that you would not see Christianity as growing in less need of God's grace. Pray that you would understand Christianity to be, that you grow in an ever-creasing knowledge of your need for God's grace and are floored by how amazing it is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that your grace changes everything. Thank you for your son. Pray in Jesus' name.